Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. Uh, this is Johan Swinnen. I'm the Director General of IFPRI and Managing Director of System Transformation at the CGIR. I'm very pleased to welcome all of you to the seminar on facilitating anticipatory action with improved early warning guidance. The seminar is part of a series, a series of making sense of food and agricultural markets, which IFPRI is coordinating, co-organizing with the Agricultural Market Information System, AMIS. This is the fifth event in this series. There are two important triggers for the event of today. The first is the recently launched 2023 mid-year update of the Global Report on Food Crises. And this report is a sobering uh, report to say the least. The number of people facing crisis level or worse acute food insecurity has risen further this year by another 10% from last year. We will hear more details on the report and its findings, which is produced by the Food Security Information Network, of which IFPRI is a founding partner. The second trigger is the call by G20 agricultural ministers to broaden the mandate of AMIS. AMIS is a G20 mechanism to provide greater market transparency for food and agriculture. Now, while AMIS is good at identifying global market shocks, it does not monitor so far how those shocks translate into increased risk of food security in the world. Hence, the G20 ministers have urged AMIS to seek greater collaboration with the early warning, early action systems for acute food insecurity. Hence, a major aim of the seminar today is to discuss how we can bring these information systems closer together to not just provide early warning of food crises, but also to better serve early action to anticipate those crises and to focus on prevention. Humanitarian responses will remain accessory, there's no doubt about it. But we'll, unless we address the root causes of acute food insecurity, such responses will have to be provided continuously and by implications turn out to be overly expensive as a type of action. So there's a strong business case to invest in preventive action. True resilience against the compounding causes of food security, food insecurity, requires data from early warning systems. These data should allow us to understand adequately the drivers of acute food insecurity and also to anticipate the effects and the impacts of shocks such as conflict, extreme weather events and economic downturns. However, preventative and development programs are typically underfunded compared to emergency responses. Now, the good news is that there's quite a bit of effort already underway to provide and to improve existing early warning early action system. And this includes real-time or near real-time monitoring of food crisis indicators. There is also the call of the G20 ministers, which I just referred to, to bring AMIS and the food and security early warning system closer together. So what is in front of us now today, the core questions we are focusing on is what more needs to be done and how should early warning systems improve to properly guide anticipatory preventive action and build food systems resilience more generally. We have an excellent lineup of speakers from organization conducting cutting edge research and analysis and engagement on these issues. I'm very pleased to welcome Sarah McHattie. She is the global coordinator of the Food Security Information Network, and she will start by exploring the current state of food insecurity. She will be followed by Rob Foss. Rob is the director of IFPRI's Market Trade and Institutions Division and he will talk about the powerful role of early warning systems. He will also introduce our panel of experts and facilitate the discussion on the part forward. 
We hope the seminar series and the seminar today serves as a platform for sharing knowledge and illuminating the path to integrating these early warning, early actions into strategies, into strategies for food security. Before turning the floor to Sarah, I would like to encourage you to take a look or use the opportunity to encourage you to take a look at the global report on food crisis 2023, the mid-year update, and also IPRI's 2023 global food policy report, which focuses very strongly on the actions we are talking about today and the issues. So thank you very much. I wish you a great and insightful presentation discussion. I look very much forward to hearing from it and to also to the discussion afterwards. Over to you, Sarah. Thank you very much. Can everybody hear me? Great, thank you. So ladies and gentlemen online, thank you very much for joining us this morning. I'll be presenting to you the findings of the 2023 Global Report on Food Crisis, the mid-year update. Next slide. So what I'm going to present to you this morning is the data that's available on acute food insecurity, that is people who are in need of urgent food assistance between January and August of 2023 this year. The reason why we produce this report is basically to maintain attention on the high levels of acute food insecurity around the world. So we do this through, next slide, next, through uh, identifying emerging needs so as to inform strategic discussions for both the humanitarian and the development community. It's important to remember that these findings are independent, they're neutral and con consensus-based. And when we report changes, they are actually comparable year on year. As well, the GRFC is developed and based on partnership. So we produce this document with no less than 16 partners, including technical agencies, regional governments, and UN agencies. Next slide. So the countries that are covered in the re this report consist of 48 countries with 2023 data. These are the countries that you can see in front of you in purple on the global map. The countries that are in gray are countries for which we don't have information. Next slide. And this is primarily because they don't have 2023 data to yet. So remember, these are some of the more major food crises, including Myanmar, Ukraine, Syria, and Palestine. But some of these countries in gray are also, there's a chronic lack of information, particularly amongst the migrants in South America and some of the countries in Asia as well. Next slide. And so what do the numbers show us in these 48 countries? When we look at the data to date compared to 2022, we see firstly, next please, that there's an inc that about one in five of the analyzed population is still in need of urgent humanitarian food assistance. And this is the bottom orange part of the, the bar charts to your right. The second thing we see is that more 10% more people in only these 48 countries are in need of urgent humanitarian food assistance. This amounts to an additional 21.6 million people in these countries in 2023 to date. And then the third thing to note, which is what you can see at the top of those two bar charts, is that we have a 16% expansion in analysis coverage. So this means that we're able to cover more areas, more vulnerable populations. And this happened particularly this year in Bangladesh, where we were able to expand the analysis beyond Cox's Bazar, Angola, Ghana, and also Pakistan. And what do these trends look like in terms of numbers? So in these 48 countries so far in 2023, 
238 million people are in need of urgent humanitarian food assistance. This does not take into account 10 countries that we included in the, mid, in the update, the main report that we published in May, amounting to about 41 million people. But of these, next please, um, of these 238 million people, 188 million of them are analyzed through IPC and CH systems, which means that we can actually break down the severity of the acute food insecurity that they face. So what we see there is that 154 million people in orange on that second donut over there are in IPC CH phase three. This means that they're in crisis. So they have food consumption gaps and their livelihoods are being eroded and they need urgent action to protect their lives and to protect their livelihoods. The section in red there, oh, if you could go back one. So 34 million people are in IPCCH phase four, also known as the phase characterized by emergency. These people face large food consumption gaps and emergency coping strategies. So they have to choose, for example, between selling their livelihood assets, their productive livelihood assets, to be able to, to consume food that day. These people need urgent action to save their lives and to save their livelihoods. And we also see up there 130,000 people who face catastrophe. This is the most extreme form of acute food insecurity and is characterized by an extreme lack of food and destitution. Urgent action is necessary to prevent widespread death, death and a complete collapse of livelihoods. In the next two slides, I'm going to present to you the two opposite extremes of food insecurity. So catastrophe, as I said before, is the most extreme form of acute food insecurity. And here we see that in 2023, so far, 130,000 people are in this phase. In Burkina Faso, we've seen a dramatic increase in the numbers of people from 1,800 to almost to over 42,000 people in this phase. And also Mali, for the first time in its history, has populations facing catastrophe. In both of these countries, this is largely driven by conflict. In Somalia and South Sudan, we've actually seen the numbers reduce in terms of people who face IPC CH phase five, but it's important to remember that this doesn't necessarily reflect an improvement. Somalia, for example, as you'll see later, has actually seen an increase in the total number of people who are in urgent need of humanitarian food assistance, whereas South Sudan has reached a stability is perhaps the wrong term, but the numbers have remained the same even as the numbers for catastrophe have gone down. Going to the other side of the spectrum, which is IPCCH phase two, we wanted to highlight these populations because while they face a minimally adequate food consumption, they can't afford any other basic needs without adopting negative coping strategies. So these are really the people who wake up in the morning and have to make a choice between on how to feed themselves, whether to choose healthcare or to actually procure food for the day. These people require development assistance, social protection, disaster risk, pro risk reduction programs because they're very vulnerable and also resilience building. And what we've seen over the years, next please, is that this the number in this phase has also been increasing. So since 2022, 32 million more people, so a total of 285 million people are in this highly vulnerable stressed phase. Obviously, each year there's changes from country to country. So I've just presented to you the aggregate global figures, but what you can see here is that there is some variation between the countries. So there were nine countries in total that saw increases 
in the number of people who face high levels of acute food insecurity, either due to new shocks or because of persisting protracted crisis. Sudan has an additional 8.6 million people facing high levels of acute food insecurity just since April this year because of conflict. Somalia, as I said earlier, also has an increase in the total population requiring humanitarian food assistance. Next slide. The mid-year update also documents 15 countries that have actually seen a decrease in the number of people facing high levels of food insecurity. We have to remember, though, that this doesn't always mean an improvement. So, for example, in Sri Lanka, which experienced a very severe economic shock over the last few years, we've seen, seen an improvement due to improving economic conditions with 2.4 million less people who face high levels of acute food insecurity. Niger, before the, before the coup, also was looking at a decrease in the number of people requiring assistance, but obviously we can assume that this will evolve or will change since, uh, since July. DRC saw a slight decrease in the numbers, but remember this doesn't necessarily indicate an improvement because we still have almost 25 million people who require assistance. Mali as well, while the overall numbers seem to have decreased, we again saw nonetheless an increase in the severity with populations, as I said earlier, who face catastrophe. Now, what drives this acute food insecurity? We know that there's the three main drivers of conflict, economic shocks, and weather extremes. Conflict, uh, as, I, as I reported earlier with Sudan, can, can very quickly drive the number of people who require assistance. So just in the last few months, we've seen an increase of 8.6 million people requiring assistance in Sudan. But we've also seen in the last few years how conflict can, uh, can cause uncertainty more globally. So for example, Ukraine still causes uncertainty in food markets, and the termination of the Black Sea Grain Initiative is likely to have an impact um, towards the end of the year. Economic shocks are still a major driver globally of acute food insecurity. We see that global food price decreases and stabilization somewhat is still not transferring to the country level. 34 food crisis countries still have double digit food inflation. Because of the successive uh, years of pressure due to the socioeconomic effects of COVID, the, the impact of the war in Ukraine, many governments still have a very high public debt level. So this means that they have less capacity to be able to respond to the needs of their, of their populations. And we're also seeing sustained high inflation overall. This contributes to high cost of living. And this of course erodes the purchasing power of all households with a particularly uh, severe impact on the more vulnerable. Weather extremes also drive high levels of acute food insecurity, both through the shock itself so, for example, drought in the Horn of Africa, Cyclone Freddy that went through Southern Africa earlier this year, and Cyclone Mocha that hit Myanmar. But we have to remember that as well as the acute shock that, is, that strikes, there's also the sustained recovery time afterwards. And during that recovery time, people still do require food assistance. This year, we're looking at another El Nino year. El Ninos traditionally are associated with drought and high temperatures that can have an impact on global food production, but also economic decline. The most recent data shows that there's a 71% probability of a strong El Nino, and we're already seeing low rainfall in many parts of the world as a result of this. So in conclusion, we see that the overall situation is not improving. And the global food crisis is more and more of a protracted nature. 
fixed. New shocks are being superimposed on persisting global drivers of inflation, high food prices, and climate change. We have to remember that the numbers that I presented earlier will go up. I've only presented data until the middle of 2023, and we anticipate more analyses, including from major food crises such as Ukraine and Syria. We also have to remember that all of this is happening as funding levels are dramatically decreasing. In 2023 and in 2024, we anticipate there's going to be a significant reduction of, food assist of funding for humanitarian and global assistance over the, um, in these next few years. How does the GRFC support early warning systems? Well, first we provide data and analysis, both a comprehensive analysis of, of data coming at the global, regional and country level, but it's also really important to remember the flip side of that is that we also highlight where there are data gaps. If you bring your attention back to the second or third slide that I presented in all the gray countries, these are countries where we need more investment in information systems to be able to have information on the acute needs in those countries. We present trends. The GRFC has been publishing since 2017. So we have eight years of trends identifying changes in magnitude and prevalence over time, and also the changing geographic distribution of crises. Also, the partnership analyzes main drivers for acute food insecurity at the country, regional, and global level, and we identify and present how these evolve over time, as well as providing regular updates. So our biannual global reporting, so every Q1 and Q3 of each year, we prevent a global aggregate figure of, and analysis of global acute food insecurity. And we also provide regional reports that give a more updated snapshot of what's happening in detail in the EGAD region and also in West Africa. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Sarah, for this uh, overview of the, the situation of uh, acute food insecurity around the world as presented the latest mid-year update of the global report on the food crisis. Um, so now let me follow up with that with um, further introduction to the main theme of our discussion is uh, looking at these trends in acute food insecurity. Uh, how good are our early warning systems working and how good are they to um, uh, anticipate uh, crises, crisis situations um, such that we can take anticipatory preventative action? We go to the next slide, please. So Sarah already mentioned and talked about the global food crisis uh, becoming um, uh, protracted and is continuing, um, and probably the situation is deepening. But in the mind of many people, um, sometimes it's, we get questions, what is the food crisis? Um, what we saw in 2021, 22, uh, and also this year, um, uh, first with rising food prices globally, um, a lot of people said, well, okay, th this is the food crisis or the food and fertilizer crisis. Uh, but when global food prices start moving downwards uh, from the middle of last year, um, then some, some ask, well, do we still have a food crisis? 
and others said, well, maybe the food crisis is over. Well, the way we define food crisis here and also in the, in the global report is this food crisis occurs when rates of hunger and malnutrition rise sharply, not when just prices rise sharply. They may be the cause of rising hunger and malnutrition, um, but when these rise sharply locally, nationally, or globally, um, this, this is what we call a food crisis. More specifically, in the uh, global report, um, as Sarah presented, um, the focus is on situation of acute food insecurity, where we get these sudden rises for people in need of food assistance uh, in order to survive. And then the food crisis situation is in those situations where a big share of a large share of the population is facing food uh, crisis, uh, acute food insecurity conditions, um, uh, meaning uh, more than 20% of the analyzed population. So by all those measures, the global food crisis is not over, even if global uh, food prices have come down. Uh, domestic inflation and food price inflation is still uh, high, but decelerating in many countries, yet we do see um, the overall numbers of uh, food insecurity, acute food insecurity increasing. But it's also pointed out by Sarah, it's sometimes difficult to make these comparisons because we may not have assessments across all countries. But clearly, if we take the, the graph here um, across the 48 countries from which uh, consistently data have been collected, um, the um, number of people facing crisis level uh, of acute first food insecurity or worse has more than doubled uh, since uh, 2016. What it also shows is that um, uh, it's not just a matter of a crisis that emerged uh, over the past two years or so, but something that has already been ongoing for uh, a, a longer period of time, uh, certainly since the mid-2010s. Uh, mid if you go to the next slide, please. So, for that, we need good early warning, early action systems to provide alerts on provincial food crisis and inform decision makers. So three points to make, and hopefully we can take that further into the discussion and go to the next slide, uh, where we should be improving and making sure that uh, the early warning, early action systems uh, function for the purpose uh, that we have in mind. First, uh, as uh, we mentioned a few times, we need the early warning systems to be able to anticipate, um, which means we need to be able to identify what are the risks that are underlying uh, that cause food crisis and what uh, could be the potential impact if those risks materialize. We know from the global report and related analyses that the three key factors driving um, most, if not all, of the food crisis situations uh, in the world, as reported in the global report, refer to situations of conflict and fragility, climate shocks, and economic shocks. And very often, they come together. Um, but the key thing there is to be able to properly anticipate, not only to be able to identify the risk, but also um, how those risks are likely to translate into food insecurity situations. 
Um, the second element is um, we need to be able to do this in real time. Um, if we don't have uh, real time information uh, or near real time information, then it will be very difficult to anticipate uh, shock. So real time means particularly that information about the risk um, that may drive up the food insecurity. And lastly, we have many, and I'll show that uh, further, um, uh, we have many um, early warning systems available, um, but many of them are have, don't talk to each other or are not sufficiently integrated in order to uh, make a full assessment for early warning uh, along the lines I just mentioned. So if we delve a little bit further into, if we go to the next slide, um, first, anticipating, so we need to identify what are the food crisis risks, assess the food security impact or the possible impacts, and out of that provides uh, early warnings. So we know a lot, for instance, about if we take, for instance, economic shocks, uh, that of course food price shocks tend to be have adverse consequences for um, food security and access to food for many people. Um, but it doesn't mean that any global shocks and when the wheat price goes up, that that will translate in equally um, uh, impacts, equal impacts in all countries uh, because of those shocks. So we need to be able to assess what are like the impacts, what are the degrees of vulnerability that uh, countries face and populations face vis-a-vis uh, -vis these shocks. We go to the next slide, please. This is why we need some further integration of the, the system. So just um, to let out a few examples, to the left side of this graph, you see examples of uh, particularly agriculture markets related systems in which AMIS agriculture market information system, which we'll hear further about in the panel discussion is a key one, GeoGlam that uh, monitors uh, weather and temperature conditions and its uh, potential impacts on uh, on production and yields, uh, which could then uh, in turn affect food prices as well as the uh, availability of food. More to the right side is, is the early warning systems, uh, um, the integrated phase classification and the related systems or the vulnerability um, and analysis monitored by uh, the World Food Program that try to um, uh, link uh, the various factors of uh, food insecurity, uh, driving food insecurity in uh, systems. And some of them um, we can say also comply with um, the real-time conditions or uh, high-frequency information that are um, up-to-date, but some are much lower frequency, uh, either annual or um, uh, at least uh, less than quarterly. Um, and the question is whether that's uh, good enough uh, for moving forward. But very clearly, if you look at the, the dots between the purely agricultural uh, systems, the uh, acute food insecurity early warning systems, and some systems that deal with um, components of it, um, they're all a bit uh, um, in different parts of the system. And I've deliberately not put any um, arrows here how one relates to another, because in practice, we see um, relatively little integration. So we need 
uh, a lot more work to bring these um, um, systems together in order to um, identify in an anticipatory way how structural vulnerabilities uh, increase um, the impact on food insecurity um, or, or the factors that may help mitigate those, uh, those impacts. To go to the next slide, um, already mentioned the importance of real-time acute food insecurity because we need to be anticipatory. So we need to know what's, what are today's risks, um, also how they've moved over time, such that we can uh, have a continuous vulnerability assessment related to the key drivers. And with that come to, uh, and that's a challenge moving forward to predictive models that could inform early action not just for mitigation, but especially for preventative uh, action. So let me stop here just to set the stage for the questions that we want to raise uh, in this um, uh, panel. So with that said, um, I've uh, the unlucky duty to also um, serve as your moderator for the discussion. Uh, we had requested uh, uh, another people uh, to uh, moderate, uh, but uh, two of them fell ill just before this happened. And uh, one was called on jury duty um, uh, today, so uh, other duties uh, to do. So you have to bear with me. So we have um, an interesting lineup of, uh, of speakers, um, those that are practitioners, uh, that are researchers, uh, and uh, also are in the driver's seat of resources uh, going to um, to areas of food crisis. So we'll start uh, first with Darif Hussein, who's the chief economist of the uh, World Food Program, uh, then followed by Sandra Ruxtel, who's the senior, re a senior researcher at the International Water Management Institute and a co-lead of a new CGIR initiative on fragility, conflict, uh, and uh, migration. Uh, and she'll be looking at it from the research uh, side, but also how uh, research can influence uh, action uh, on the ground. Then third, uh, we have uh, Joseph Glauber, who's a senior research fellow at IFPRI, but importantly also he's uh, the current secretary of AMIS, the Agricultural Market Information System of the um, G20. Um, and last but not least, um, we'll be joined by Leonard Mitchie, who's the head of Sustainable Agriculture Food Systems and Fisheries at the European uh, Commission. <coughs> So what I'll do is I'll first um, uh, raise uh, questions for these of the panelists and uh, they will give their views and perspectives. Um, and then we'll move to Q&A with the audience. And um, for everybody who is online, please, um, as we move forward, submit your questions in the Q&A uh, uh, chat box so, so we can pick those up and post them to the panelists. Um, and then I hope we'll get to a lively discussion. So um, let's start with Arif Hussein, who is the Chief Economist of the World Food Program. Uh, Arif, you have both firsthand experience with early warning uh, and early action systems, but you're also a developer of the early warning systems for food crisis risk. So given the recurrence of food crises, often in the same context and surges in acute food insecurity worldwide, something must not be working so well. So in your view, what works and what does not work with the existing early warning systems to inform preventative action, or is the uh, main issue with the preventative action? 
Over to you, Harry. Thank you, Rob. Um, hello, everybody. I'm really happy to be here. Um, Rob knows, uh, Joe knows. I mean, this is a this is a topic which is quite close to to our hearts. Um, as um, Rob was mentioning, um, right now in World Food Program, we have um, we have a real time monitoring system, which is running live in about 38 countries. Meaning, we collect daily information on people's consumption and people's coping. Uh, from 38 countries uh, live. We also have a system which is doing what is called now casting, meaning using technologies to find out what is happening, not with real-time data, but based on other high-frequency data and previous assessment data in about 54 countries. Um, now, for me, uh, I think I'm, I'm going to continue referring to Rob because I really uh, agree with a lot of things he said. The first thing which really matters is that we have systems for early warning, uh, but they're not connected, right? So so, so the first C is connections. Now, how important is that? Um, look at international prices. Do they talk to the, you know, country level prices? Do they talk about pr price transmission? Uh, so we need to look at food inflation in countries. That's also real time. Uh, we also need to look at things like on the economic front, um, devaluation of currencies, you know, countries' ability to import their food, their issues of balance of payment. Uh, we also know, need to look at what is happening in terms of overall capacities of countries, let's say, you know, because of debt or debt servicing or rising interest rates. All of these things at the end of the day need to connect for us to have a correct picture of what is happening in the country both in terms of the food insecurity of people, but also the ability of countries to respond to that food insecurity through their own means. And if we don't look, if we just look at one thing and not the, the whole picture, I mean, we are getting, a, we are giving mixed messages or we are not getting it right. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's that simple. So connections, connectedness of these systems, is critically important. For me, the second thing is we call them early warning systems. That by definition means that they must run whether it's hot or whether it's cold. They must run 24 seven, 365 days. But our tendency is that we put these systems in when there is trouble. Well, if you put in when there is already trouble, why do you need an early warning system? If you want to inform early action, these systems need to find out what is going on before most people do. And above all, somebody needs to trust those systems to take action on the basis of what has been found out before it comes out in news. In that sense, we need to be really have credibility of our systems. Maybe once people will trust you if we are wrong. Second time, they won't. So the importance of not only connecting everything, but getting it right and running it 24-7, 365 days is extremely important. The third thing for me is coverage. If you looked at Sarah's presentation, if you looked at uh, Rob's presentation, what you would see is that till COVID, uh, we were looking like early 2020, we were looking at about 50, 55 countries 
and that covered about 98% of humanitarian assistance. And that also, so if you were focused on those countries, that was enough. Past COVID, you start to look that 50 countries now in terms of actions goes up to 79, 80 countries, just for World Food Program. But our data, ability, our ability to collect data is still stuck in those 50 countries. If you looked at Sarah's report for 2023, she's reporting in 48 countries with huge numbers. But what about the rest? So when we are going forward, we need to make sure that our systems are responsive to what is happening in the world and our coverage is adequate for us to be giving numbers from countries which were previously not part of our equation. And for me, the fourth thing which the, what, uh, what works and what doesn't work is, look, even with the 2023 report, we are talking about history. We're talking about what has already happened. We're not talking about 24. So that forecasting part, that early warning part in true sense, is not there. Nobody has the numbers which would be saying basically to you right now that in 2024, we expect to see this type of food insecurity in the 70 plus countries where we are concerned. My hope, my wish, my dream is that we do have a system, thanks to AI, thanks to deep learning, thanks to now forecasting now, which allows us to be able to predict food insecurity with confidence so we can provide the information for early warning, early action. And what Rob, you, you, you asked me to talk about, inform preventive measures. Because if we are just looking at what is happening right now, how are we informing preventive measures? We are just mitigating or adapting to what is going on right now. So that's that's the big big call. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, um, Arif. Um, I heard you heard you talk about the four big C's. I would say it's uh, connectedness or connected the connectedness of the systems. We need continuous monitoring. Uh, they need to be credible, and we need coverage, uh, adequate coverage. Um, uh, and then uh, from what you said last, that there are still big jumps in the analysis uh, that are existing in terms of how to get from assessing the risks on to yeah, the impacts is such that we can better understand in real time um, the, the needs for preventative action. Okay, well, no doubt we'll get back to more of these issues in the further discussions. So thanks very much, Arif. Um, uh, we'll now move to Sandra Ruxtel, Professor Senior Research at the International Water Management Institute and the co-lead of the the research initiative on fragility, conflict, and migration. Uh, Sandra, in fragile context and situation of conflict, it's both hard to monitor food insecurity, if only because of the security situation, the physical security situation. But for the same reason, um, both emergency relief and preventive action may be hard to implement. So how should early warning and early action mechanisms be adapted to such context? Do we have good examples of effective anticipatory action in those contexts that you know of? 
Thank you, Rob, and hello, everybody. Um, thank you, Rob, for those questions. Um, these are excellent questions that obviously I'll do my best to touch on in just a few minutes, um, some initial reflections. So as I see it, there are three interconnected action areas to consider as we explore these questions. And you're already going to see alignments with what several people have talked about. One is understanding vulnerability. Another is integrating the data. And third is aligning and coordinating near and long-term strategies. Now I'm going to reflect on those as they relate to conflict situations. So we, first of all, as I said, we need to align our definitions of vulnerability. Now, as the GRFC uh, points out, climate insecurity, economic shocks, and weather extremes are contributing to record levels of food insecurity. Now we can all agree that we want to address these vulnerabilities but how do we define vulnerability when we make decisions in terms of emergency response or development investments? Now, for example, I was recently at a meeting at the ICRC office here in Amman um, discussing how to make climate adaptation work in conflict situations. Now, water came up as a point of concern for many agencies. So we were talking about climate. Now, to which one humanitarian professional responded, well, how does water scarcity translate into nutritional impacts? Not livelihoods lost or, or uh, increased mobility or forced displacement, but nutritional impacts. Now this person wanted the evidence on his terms explaining that this is how his agency defines vulnerability and how they trigger action, even if they believe water and climate change are major sources of concern. So the point is, Different organizations define and respond to vulnerability differently. And for some, especially on the development end of the spectrum, where investment is guided by sustainability principles, the causes of vulnerability are also consideration for design. Okay. So opportunity lies in understanding these different approaches to vulnerability and building collaboration around a shared understanding of how our operating paradigms can combine into a more holistic approach to early warning, early action, or anticipatory action. Second, integration, uh, integrating the data. Now, once we've defined what we mean by, by vulnerability and the causes of those vulnerabilities, we need to develop indicators and measurements, which are in these systems that um, we've been discussing. So I see two points for consideration with regard to data integration to better serve in conflict situations. One is bringing conflict indicator data into early warning and early action systems. And second is obtaining good data during conflict to improve response and prevention strategies. So first, conflict indicator data. Now, compound crisis means compounding vulnerabilities, okay? even harder to measure and to do everything with, right? So climate change plus economic shock plus conflict and insecurity. This report frames the problem of compound crisis. Now, with regard to climate change, economic trends and nutrition and so on, there are established and commonly understood quantifiable indicators to use. Of course, getting the data is another question and I'll get to that in a moment. But more work has been done on these areas than with regard to conflict data. There are some advocates for including conflict and security data into early warning and early action platforms. Rob, you mentioned this yourself. But this data continues to challenge researchers and practitioners alike, and predictive platforms around conflict remain highly controversial. But the demand to integrate conflict into early warning, early action remains. For this reason, under the Fragility Conflict and Migration Initiative, we're conducting research on 
on these systems and exploring ways to bridge this gap. Now, second, it can be difficult to obtain data and evidence in places affected by armed conflict. There can be a lack of information about vulnerable people. There can be little information about climate risks and food security issues, for example, in locations under the control of armed groups. Weather and climate information may be low quality as weather stations are damaged and technical capacity is lost. And data on successful interventions and lessons learned may be hard to obtain. And when we try to get down to level or issues of granularity of data, that's another ball game. Data may not, and this is extremely important, data may not be trusted by some parties in the midst of conflict. So therefore triggering action and influencing decisions can be especially tricky in these situations. So for all these reasons, coalition building and data sharing is critical for the effective, uh, for effective early warning, early action initiatives and evidence-based adaptation strategies. Now third, aligning and coordinating near and long-term strategies. So my last point. So once, uh, once we can define and measure these vulnerabilities, then we can better inform the design and implementation of proactive and preventive investments, including early warning, early action, and climate adaptation. So this is how I refer to anticipatory action myself. It's a combination of those two things, which together should be embedded in a disaster risk management strategy that seeks to guide resources in advance to prevent and reduce the costs of crisis when it occurs. But as we bridge near and long-term initiatives, we also need to bridge humanitarian and development operations. Success lies in understanding how organizational mandates and operational strategies can be combined to support a holistic approach to anticipatory action in a location in conflict. Now, climate policies such as nationally de determined contributions are emerging as an area of opportunity for early warning, early action and holistic anticipatory action, including in countries affected by conflict. However, conflict countries, if they have an NDC or other climate policy, often do not have the capacity to implement. Likewise, forced displacement and the needs of host communities are not well accounted for in most climate strategies. And when these strategies do exist, access to financing can be difficult, especially climate financing. Humanitarian and development practitioners often do not speak the same language as we know, and funding is not well integrated. But effective anticipatory action begins with system building which includes the steps of defining vulnerability and coordinating data. The system building process can also serve as a means for integrating humanitarian and development operational paradigms. So do we have good examples of effective anticipatory action in conflict contexts? It depends on who you ask. Some organizations will have examples of success and progress that we are drawing from in our research. But in my view, anticipatory action could eventually provide the best example of action at the heart of the humanitarian development peace nexus. That is, when the anticipatory action scheme is designed and maintained to be conflict sensitive and conflict responsive. Under the Fragility Conflict and Migration Initiative, we have a work package focusing on anticipatory action, and we're currently working together with field partners to map out a research agenda for anticipatory action in conflict situations, which will focus heavily on examples of collaboration between the humanitarian and development sectors. So if anyone wants to participate in this, we always welcome your partnership and please reach out to me. 
That's all from me for now. So I look forward to the discussion. Thanks very much, Rob. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Sarah. It's fantastic. So we're just starting with the last uh, observation. We, we cannot wait for seeing the outcomes of your research and uh, performing us better. But very clearly, some ideas you already put uh, on the table. We need um, uh, to better understand vulnerability, make sure we are on the same page and in different contexts, and particularly uh, when the vulnerabilities are driven by a situation of, of conflict. Uh, we need to better integrate uh, the indicators uh, because of the compounding vulnerabilities. And uh, um, Arif also spoke to that point. And then most importantly, we need uh, system building, which could start with better integrated early warning systems that can help connect uh, long-term and short-term uh, responses to, um, to food crisis. So thank you very much, uh, Sandra, for, for those insights. Um, let me now move to uh, Joe Glauber, it's a senior research fellow at IFPRI and, as I mentioned, secretary of, uh, of AMIS. Um, Joe, AMIS has brought greater transparency in global markets for food and agriculture, um, yet we saw recent spikes in food and when we saw these uh, recent spike in food and fertilizer prices, it proved difficult to find swift answers to the implications for food insecurity of those uh, shocks in global markets. So in your view, how should agriculture market information systems uh, be uh, better connected with early warning mechanisms for acute food security? And what do you see as a priority in stemming global food price volatility as part of preventative actions that try to address acute food insecurity? Over to you, Joe. Yeah, no, thanks, Rob. Uh, and thanks for um, uh, the invitation to be on this panel. Um, I, I think as most people know, Amos was launched uh, following the food price crisis in 2007, eight and 2010-11. Um, you know, its charge, and I think it's really important to sort of understand the charge of Amos is to monitor the supply and demand situation of four main food commodities, uh, wheat, maize, rice, and soybeans. Uh, we are now expanding to vegetable oils. Uh, we're also doing work on, on fertilizer, but it, it is this focus at a global level in one sense, um, obviously taking into account production in individual countries and trade, et cetera. And then the other thing is promoting policy coordination among main producing and consuming countries of those crops. So it essentially aimed at the G20 countries in particular, but also um, uh, some non-G20 members who are large consumers or producers of, of these commodities. I think I've, Amos in you know the 10 plus years that it's been around has done a good job of actually disseminating information. Uh, they put out a, mo a market monitor 10 times a year or so, which is a forward-looking document. I mean, this is something that actually is taking current information, making projections about the, the current crop year. Um, and, and that has been very important. We've put out a, a, a website. We have this webinar series of, of which this is one. The other big thing that I think Amos has been doing is capacity building, trying to improve market information um, in, in many, many countries. Um, and then lastly, uh, providing a forum for market and policy discussion. There, I think, uh, you know, again, we have information group that meets a couple of times a year and then rapid this rapid response forum. I think in terms of what we do well, um, we I think the market monitoring work uh, is, is quite good. We could improve that. There are key information gaps that need to be filled. Uh, we still uh, need better information 
information on stocks, feed demand, more timely estimates of trade data. We are undertaking uh, efforts to improve that. But I think that, that as we saw in COVID, during COVID and, and the Ukraine war, the difficulty is the policy now is the policy side. When countries put on export restrictions, for example, um, that really has a, a, a can have a very big impact on on market prices and market price volatility, as we saw. And I think that that Amos has tried to uh, step forward. We had uh, all the former chairs of Amos uh, signed a statement, put out you know uh, uh, we. Uh, uh, saying don't put on export restrictions. Uh, we've tried to be very clear on that point. I think we've had some success actually. Uh, I can point back to 2012 where we had uh, countries who were uh, early on thinking about putting on export restrictions, but Amos was able to come out with a statement saying that uh, the markets were, were functioning well, that, that um, uh, it was a very different situation than what we've seen in 2007, 8, 2010, 11. And we've tried to do that with COVID in, in Ukraine. It's just difficult, I think, with, with uh, a rapidly uh, um, uh, changing environment, uh, certainly in, both in the Black Sea and as we've seen more recently with, with uh, potential export restrictions on a commodity like rice. I do think the the thing that is important for uh, on the Amos side is to continually improve analytical capability. Uh, we've been working very closely with FAO, uh, who has its own uh, uh, work do, uh, undergoing on on improving uh, early warning systems. Uh, I think the other thing that is clearly uh, an indication for. Um, uh, from the G20 and others is to improve analytical uh, capability. That is to be able to look at alternative scenarios, other sorts of things that currently we don't do. We essentially put out a forecast of where we think the, the, the world will be uh, based on current information, but we don't consider alternatives. And I think that's something that in the future, hopefully we'll be able to do. And lastly, I would just agree with Arif who, who uh, you know, this year has been actually, we've had a number of G20 members and, and others who have come forward to support the work of Amos with very generous donations. And, um, but that comes after several very lean years, frankly, where it was very difficult to sort of continue operations on a, on a day-to-day -day basis and, and above doing anything, just what we, the, the sort of normal work of market monitoring. And so I think that, that it is important to, uh, as Arif said, to, to maintain that 24-7, uh, and, and hopefully we can improve that information and uh, be useful uh, for these other groups that are, that, that are represented today in terms of uh, improving their information in terms of uh, making assessments at, at the regional and, and country level. Thanks. Thanks, uh, Joe. And, uh... Well, thanks for briefing us on, on where Amos stands and I think one important role uh, and to remind us of that. So not when you think of preventive action, it's not about um, the action that would be desirable, but also to uh, avoid uh, undesirable action that could be damaging to food security situation where Amos has been effective. Um, we also look very much forward to, to the, yeah, the Amos work into um, improving its analytical 
work that could uh, further uh, help bridge this uh, current gap between the international or the global agricultural market information systems and the food security uh, early warning uh, system. So thanks for that, uh, Joe. Um, to everybody online, please um, submit your questions in the Q&A chat box. Uh, so after the next um, intervention, we'll move to the Q&A session. We have already quite a few questions, but no doubt um, there's a lot of uh, food for thought here. So please raise your questions uh, in the chat box. Uh, with that, um, uh, let me move to Leonard Mitchie, who just joined us. Thanks for joining us, Leonard. Um, he's the head of the Sustainable Agri-Food Agri Systems and Fisheries at the European uh, Commission. So Leonard, uh, the EU is actively engaged in the global network against food crisis. It's also main funder of existing early warning and early action mechanisms. So can you tell us how the global network is using these existing mechanisms and how fit for purpose uh, are the pre present mechanisms in your view. Um, with this, I mean, uh, are they both effective for informing how to direct EU support for both emergency relief and preventative uh, action? Or if not, what, what should be changed? Change? What, uh, what should be improved? Thanks a lot and uh, good afternoon, uh, colleagues. And thanks, Rob, uh, for inviting us. Yes, the European Union and DG uh, INTPA uh, in close collaboration with other services, uh, especially DG ECHO on, on the humanitarian side, uh, through the Global Network Against Food Crisis um, and the Global Report on Food Crisis, we also support the tools that make it possible to build the analysis for food security and to make projections. Um, amongst the early warning tools funded in recent years, special attention has been given to financing of the IPC, so the Integrated uh, Food Security Phase Classification that enables food security actors in a given country to build a consensus-based analysis. EU funding has notably enabled to expand the geographical extension, and we are in discussion on how this extension from around 50 countries to more than 60 countries could be possible because uh, the global report and the work that we do under the global network it tries to have a consensus-based approach also in terms of um, targeting at country level. The support to IPC also pays particular attention to forecasts to enable us to inform anticipate reaction and get the IPC tool with a greater agility, timeliness, and responsiveness. Other innovative methods that have been supported through the EU um, include the WFP remote data collection and near real-time monitoring systems. This feeds WFP, such as the hunger uh, map, but also the hunger hotspots, which is another flagship um, uh, produced by the global network against food crisis. All these tools for alerting and measuring food insecurity uh, funded by the European Union, but also by other partners, are critical tools to prioritize funding, target adequate geographical areas and populations, both on the humanitarian fund field and actions to strengthen resilience. However, we know that there is clear room for improvement in these tools. In the area of development, for, for instance, we need to better understand the structural causes of food crisis in order to provide durable solutions. Hence, why we invest in IPC chronic analysis. 
and together with our joint research center and FAO, we also want to make progress on understanding the linkages between food crisis and agriculture potential. What's clear, and this was also mentioned by Joe, um, in terms of AMIS, the debate that we had on fertilizer, typology of fertilizer, but also typology of production, the Dakar Compact, I think it helps the donor community, but also our partner countries to prioritize what typology of production for what purpose, also in terms of climate change shocks. Should it be wheat? Should it be maize? Should it be orphan crops? Should it be pulses? Uh, how do you reconcile a lot of priorities in terms of production potential, but which is resilient to, to climate change, to climate shocks, and also to the issue of debt and finance, because I think this is also critical. We are in a total different situation than five, 10 years ago, where uh, the crunch of debt, inflationary pressures, and the post-COVID repercussions are still pretty much with us. Um, I think also we, we need to recall that the European Union has also been supporting national food crisis prevention and management systems, uh, the RPSA, the SWAC, uh, um, various countries in the Sahel, uh, various safety net programs in Ethiopia, supporting drought management programs in Kenya, supporting resilience building programs from a humanitarian development peace nexus approach, um, in very fragile contexts, not only in the Sahel, but Burundi. And also, we also need to mention the development of cloud technology-based platforms, Africa Drought Advisory, that is under development and is expected to be in production by the end of the year with the support of the JRC and the European Drought Observatory. Uh, just maybe what is still missing from a multilateral point of view is clearly more target dialogue, more joint actions, and clearly the global network is aimed to engage in more at country level. We clearly produce a lot of what I, we call global public goods, which are integrated in the UN Security Council, but also at the highest echelons in Rome, in Geneva, and in Washington, but clearly the action has to be more at country level to have common analysis and common prioritization with articulated and complementary actions in a multi-stakeholder approach, which also targets joint planning. Reinforce dialogue with partner countries to build institutionalized, locally-owned mechanisms to tackle food crisis, providing both a response to social inequalities, food production in an inclusive way, and getting more efficient food assistance with better targeting and monitoring systems will actually be the aim in our future interventions and especially uh, through the global network. Thanks, Rob. No, thanks, uh, Leonard. And I think we should be very grateful for uh, the EU for supporting all these mechanisms, also driving, being a major driving force behind the global network against food crisis. And uh, we appreciate all the actions that are being taken. And as you mentioned, we need uh, probably a lot more joint action, particularly at the country level uh, in order to um, uh, to get to uh, preventing food crisis rather than um, uh, trying to mitigate the impacts uh, of the shocks that are repetitive. So thanks for that, uh, Leonard. Um, okay, now I'm gonna take it back to the panel with a number of questions from the floor, but as I mentioned in the beginning, please also feel free to 
the React to um, to things that the other co-panelists have said. So uh, maybe first question, since there's a couple of questions um, that were raised around conflict, both in terms of data and in terms of action. So um, uh, so address the these the, the, maybe these two two questions to both um, Sarah, Arif, and Sandra. Since we talked about that first. Um, so first, uh, the first question that we, all three of you is, um, uh, I think Sandra was it who mentioned that um, the data may not be that trusted in complex situations. It's difficult to collect the, the data. So in terms of uh, uh, Arif's point on credibility of data, so uh, how good do we know what's needed in, um, in conflict situations? Uh, and then related question, of course, is that since particularly uh, in Africa, uh, many of the food crisis situations are driven by conflict, um, uh, and which is the major driver, that also then uh, complicates the, the action, both the humanitarian action and, of course, the preventative action. So uh, for each of you, from your perspectives, how could you dwell a bit more on how should uh, both the data be handled uh, and the, the action be organized uh, in conflict situations. So first Sarah and then Arif and then Sandra. Sandra, Sarah. Thank you, Rob. Um, yeah, when I get this question, I always, I always think back to the situation of Somalia, which is a country where intuitively one would think it would be the most difficult to collect information where there isn't uh, because of the so limited access but actually this is one country where it is possible to where we have almost the best information and the most up-to-date monitoring and i think that's an example that shows where where we invest and where we collaborate and work together we can actually paint a very clear picture of what's happening even in the most challenging environments and i understand of course that resources to do so are would be are, is quite complex but we do have to remember that conflict is the major driver of food insecurity and i think that what we're also seeing more and more it's also um it's also an it's an outcome as well as a driver so definitely worth investing more on those those conflict indicators and weaving them into the, the, the analysis on food insecurity due to its contribution. Thanks. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, Arif? Yeah, thanks, Rob. Good question. Um, for me, look, I mean, we'd, we'd like to say that, um, you know, over the last 20 years when I started in Sudan, a perfectly good answer if you couldn't go into an area was that it's a no-go area and that was that was enough uh, and people accepted that now with the technologies there you know if you cannot put your feet in a place you can put your phones there if you cannot put your phones there you can put your high resolution satellite imageries there so so there are ways of of uh, getting this information but the trick is how do you triangulate that and again how often do you do you connect that um, this also reminds me, I think it's in our, our, our chapter together also on the early warning side is that because of conflict, we actually need to revisit some of our questions, particularly when it relates to proving or definition of a famine. So if you look at it in the 70s and 80s, famines were drought driven. So you could say, you know what, 
you could go and do a mortality survey. You could do a, go and do a nutrition survey. You could do a food security assessment. And on the basis of that, come back and say whether it's a famine or not. Now, when you have, uh, you have conflict, those tools don't work. Why they don't work? Because they are time consuming. So imagine going to a place where in two hours and you have 50,000 people in front of you and you have to decide whether they are in family-like conditions or not. What do you do? And I think this is where we need that research to come up with something which is not only technically good, but it is implementable within the time frame constraints that you face when you go to some of these places. And I think this is where we need to be, be working going, going ahead. Thank you. Thanks, thanks, Harry. Uh, Sandra? Thanks, Rob. These are really great questions. So, um, I, look, first of all, what is needed in terms of data collection? Look, every country is different. And um, a colleague called me out on my phone while we were going through these presentations and I kept saying conflict country, for example. We shouldn't be saying conflict countries. These are regions that might be affected by instability, uh, fragility, all these complexities. We haven't even talked about refugees and forced migration and all of that, which is often a characteristic of these situations that is very important for all of our data and planning. But um, so when it comes to it, we really need to come up with these solutions place by place. Um, we need to look for trusted organizations in most extreme situations. I have found that what the organizations that have the strongest connections with those that they're trying to serve might be humanitarian agency, could be UN agency, it may not, might be a civil society organization. You go to those who are trusted and make them a data partner. When we're dealing with fragile situations where there's a national government, we need to always remember that the government has to be our partner in these situations and governments can be siloed about how they manage their own data even. So this is, you know, it, it really depends on the context, who are the actors, what, you know, what role the government can play and yeah, who has the data and who's trusted with it. So that's, those are some of the things I consider when working in different types of places. Now, how should we organize? The first thing I thought when you said that, I said, well, we've always got sector work, or we usually have sector working groups or, or, or something like that. I wouldn't say we should do these humanitarian working groups because that's tipping the balance to, towards the humanitarian operations. And then it dawned on me, look, it has to do with how the money moves, okay? In these situations, money in crisis is slanted towards humanitarian operations. We need to balance this better so that money is going towards prevention, which means involving the development actors, involving the IFIs, the bilaterals, so forth, in these preventive strategies so that it's not always you know, heavy on spending in an emergency situation. We're actually, by spending in advance, we're spending less on emergency later, right? Recalibrating how we consider these investments. So that can mean a, a little bit of a shift sometimes for some development agencies that I've worked for in the past, um, you know, where they're not sure how to operate in complex situations, but that's improving, right? This is becoming a known space for different um, actors, and I think we need to bring those communities along the spectrum uh, together and change that spending paradigm. Back to you. Thanks, uh, thanks, Sandra. Well, uh, very will be um, good to dwell further on, on the conflict uh, situation. But first, um, um, 
this is a question over to, to Joe. Actually, two questions I'd like to address to you is, um, again, relates to the data quality is a question from the audience is, uh, how does Amos address for data collection practices in the countries in the global south? And maybe you could also address it how the G20 mechanism uh, covers uh, the global south uh, to begin with um, and what needs to be improved. Um, the second is a bit more contemporaneous question on, or maybe, yeah, do we need an early warning for India? Is India likely to face a food crisis? That's a question uh, given the climate change um, impact and also the, the recent uh, shocks to food production as well as the, um, um, the policy responses in terms of restrictions on exports of rice from, uh, from India. So maybe you could address those two questions, Joe. Yeah, first on the data, yeah, it, uh, this was one of the rationales for the creation of Amos, frankly, was to improve data uh, quality, uh, particularly in inventories, which we had less of. As I think Reef mentioned, we, we have a lot of technologies that we can look at production, uh, for example, with satellite technology and looking at vegetative um, information and, and making assessments. It's much, much harder with stocks. And even if you look at the major outfits in the world that 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 forecasts uh, or monitor and forecast stocks, like the U.S. Department of Agriculture or the International Grains Council or FAO Amos, um, we all differ in terms of our estimates for for those those levels. We just don't have great information, and I think that's uh, a failure in one sense of Amos over the last ten years not to improve that. I mean, we've we, we've had a, a We've had uh, workshops, we've had other things, capacity building, but uh, at the end of the day, countries have to be willing to go out and survey, they have to be willing to report, and that's that's a challenge. Now, you mentioned um, Amos, uh, Rob, in terms of his coverage, you're, you're right, it's essentially the G20 countries. So understand there's not a lot of developing countries, uh, least developed countries in that mix, certainly. And so uh, a lot of the same countries say that Arif is following or, or um, Sarah is following, we don't cover much. Uh, and, and largely because they're not major players in global markets, but we do, we, we certainly cover it on the weather side uh, through GeoGlam and that, and it, they're becoming increasingly important, obviously, because of things like LNU do affect uh, uh, you know, maize production in South Africa, a country that is part of Amos and an active member of Amos. Um, so that's one thing. Now, to shift and actually talk about India, I think India is, I, I'm less worried about India uh, in terms of their their uh, uh, production levels and other things this year. They, they look quite uh, good, in fact. I mean, the, the issue is whether or not their rice production is hit hard by, by El Nino, like we worry a lot about other South Asian and Southeast Asian countries uh, with this. The bigger issue is the actions they're currently taking on, particularly on, on rice, uh, just in terms of, India is a very large uh, wheat market. Um, uh, they provide about 40% of the exports on, uh, in the world on, for rice. And these export restrictions affect about half of that. So these, these have very important consequences for the rest of the world, particularly as we're talking about an El Nino potentially affecting production. So that's something Amos certainly is monitoring. We've written a lot about it over the last three months. Uh, and I expect 
as we get more and more information on the monsoon and whether or not it it ends early, we'll have much better information on India and other parts of South Asia. But well, thank, thanks, Joe. Well, maybe on, on this last point. So since we're here to talk about early warning mechanism, so do we need an early warning signal that El Nino is is going to um, yeah um, distort global markets in terms of big uh, shortages and high price volatility? That's your expectation. Could I have just have a, a brief rejoinder there? Uh, we, we won't know until the monsoon. I mean, one, one of the issues about El Nino was its impact will will be if it has an impact is the fact the monsoons will end early. And so, uh, yes, we are behind in, in cumulative rainfall in parts of East India, parts of Bangladesh. Um, and already countries in, in Southeast Asia have all taken down their estimates for production a little bit. But the real issue is whether or not this monsoon ends early, and that, and that will be the real thing. I might add, uh, just for a shameless plug, we will be doing, an, uh, uh, next month, be doing a, uh, another Amos IFRI webinar on rights. So uh, check those calendars. OK, we'll look out for that. Thanks, uh, thanks Joe. Um, Leonard, um, there's a question um, regarding humanitarian assistance, uh, which uh, typically that's the, the, uh, the person raising the question saying is built around a needs-based principle uh, and disaster or emergency declaration from the uh, governments in the countries that are affected. So to the extent this, this is the case, so, so this could be a limitation for the need for humanitarian action if, if uh, governments don't identify them properly? And also, what would it mean for um, addressing anticipatory action if this is the starting point for any assistance to countries? Then I'll talk to you. Thanks. Um, OK. Um, we come from the more uh, medium to long-term intervention, um, but clearly, um, we, we lies very closely with our humanitarian colleagues. And our trust is clearly on what Joe and, uh, and uh, Sandra just said. Um, first of all, is the right data available, accessible? Um, in the G7, G20 context, we always continue asking for better data. Um, and I don't know from a data point of view what we can do more than what I said on the IPC. Um, dimension to have a bit of a consensus-based approach. That's first. It's clear that resources, ODA resources, is going to be extremely limited and risks being shrunk. I haven't heard much. So first of all, we have a discussion also coming up with the WFP uh, to put private sector at the core. We have mentioned a bit private sector, but we don't really mention much what type of private sector what type of de-risking, whether the private sector wants to de-risk in fragility, whether guarantees are the right tool for de-risking, how big can the private sector be, what type of production should be done in fragile context. Okay, Somalia mentioned all the time, it's like the case which is quite popping up, but what about the Sahel? What about the intra-regional dynamics? Because these are not countries on their own, there are spillover effects. Um, what typology of private sector can persist uh, and prevail 
in the context of the Sahel these days. The situation is under flux and very dynamic. So that is, I think, what is a bit of missing link because we can go and we discuss with Arif and the WFP and we will have a deep dive with the WFP on, on the private sector, on the typology of instruments. But the question is how unlimited are the resources between the humanitarian side and the more development side, uh, whether we can have more anticipatory tools, but what we are confronted as donors within the international partnership point of view is how to prioritize typology of production systems where, for example, and I, I link to what Joe just said on RISE, because now the big question mark, and uh, this is discussed also with FAO, what will happen to RISE and what will happen to RISE imports in Africa if there are shocks in the RISE markets in Asia? So that then brings us to the question of what type of production should we engage in in fragile context, which can withstand climate shocks, but which can have a return on investment and linked to lack of the risking or only blending operations, or maybe discussions with the IFIs on how you reschedule that and um, pump in the fiscal space and, and, and address the, the cash assistance dimension, the safety nets with the more production um, oriented approach. What is clearly missing, and I think that is the landscape that we would like also to engage in the global network is um, to actually identify opportunities around production systems, which can withstand the shocks of climate change, but also use tools like AMIS to actually see what typology of production is actually the most makes sense. And this also links to the work that Amos will do on fertilizers. We will go, uh, many of you know that the Afri uh, this, uh, Soil Health and Fertilizer Summit now will take place in Nairobi in November. Uh, the issue of fertilizers and inputs was very high on the agenda in 2021 and 2022, less so today, but we know that fertilizers, input subsidies, um, the typology of support to production systems across all the continents, especially in Africa, I think is critical in a context of a financial crunch and also the challenges uh, of, of debt and, uh, and exchange rate misalignment. So I think this is also something where we need to, stay, to, to anticipate more. Um, the demands of the humanitarian uh, community will be bigger and bigger. We know this um uh, from 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 daily alerts but we also know that we need to uh, work on the resilient food systems that the un food system summit stocktake has just reiterated that the africa climate summit has reiterated that cop will reiterate my only problem rob is there are so many documents so many processes from the dakar compact to the un food systems pathways to all the plans the question is how can these land and how can these be prioritized and then linked with the resources that the global community has in 2023 and hopefully the marrakesh meeting the meetings of the imf and the world bank will give a bit of a, a signal a, a, a light out of the tunnel because clearly the fiscal space is going to be critical especially for the ldc's and the SIDS. 
uh, thanks Leonard um, for bringing all these points together and uh, well let's indeed hope that all this talk will lead to uh, more money but especially action in the right the right direction uh, very very important to point these things out um, we're getting close towards the end but we have a bit time as for a couple of more questions so move back to Sarah uh, again there's a question uh, whether you could indicate um, uh, whatever any major countries or countries with major food crisis that have exited uh, a crisis situation since the beginning of the production of the uh, global report on food crisis since uh, 2016 more or less and uh, more to the point uh, for those that did exit uh, what what can we learn from those experiences Thank you, Rob, and that's indeed a very good question. Um, I would say that actually what we tend to see is the opposite, is there's very few countries that exit, and it tends to be that the same countries are included year on year. So for example, in the last five or seven years, we've included the same 51 countries, 29 of which were major food crises. So we tend to see the countries with problems don't, uh, don't necessarily exit them. And I think this is for two main reasons. The first one is food insecurity is um, linked to, well, most food secure, major food crises are protracted crises driven by conflict and, uh, and, and, and those constant drivers that, that, that affect those countries, but also shocks. So for example, Sri Lanka is one country that moves in and out of the global report on food crisis. Uh, that was actually an example that I presented earlier as well. And that was because it faced an economic shock and then was able to recover. But another major reason why countries move in and out is actually not linked so much to the context, but to the data. So what we tend to find is analysis coverage can change. So if it decreases, for example, then, uh, then we see that the numbers of people will go down and so they won't be qualified as major food crises. We face challenges around the timeliness of data. So not all countries, and this is particularly true of migrant populations and refugee populations. We don't often have recent data on food security. So those whole populations are often excluded from the global report because there's no data to report on. And then we have the classics of Eritrea and North Korea for which it's very difficult to get information. So what do we take from this? I, I think there's two, uh, there's two major lessons to learn from this, is that first of all, uh, we need to have, as Arif was saying earlier, we need to have regular monitoring. Food insecurity and acute food insecurity tends to be, or can be transient. And so we have to make sure that we're monitoring it before it happens and even countries at risk while they're not necessarily facing high levels of acute food insecurity, but we also need better and more information systems. So we need to get stronger at collecting data that we can actually aggregate and analyze and more frequently as well. As I said, uh, we only include data from the previous year. So data that was collected 18 months beforehand, even on a major food crisis would not be included. And then we also have to get better at aggregating that data and analyzing what is coming out of those information systems. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Um, um, let me address the last question to Arif. Um, uh, actually, two questions um, that come from the audience, but it, I'm tweaking them a little bit. So, so Sarah emphasized quite a few times that the, the crisis that we are witnessing today are most of them are protected crisis. Mm -hmm. So, the so first question is: so Should we say, well, is it still an acute 
situation of food insecurity or is it uh, protracted and chronic? It's there all the time, right? So, so how how should we interpret those situations? Um, so that's uh, the first question uh, to you, and the second, which I'll address to you because um, I know you're working on that. So it's a question on how can we put um, artificial intelligence to work to improve real-time monitoring and analysis of food prices? Over to you. Thanks, Rob. Um, first one, first question, this is a great question, I think. For me, the, the one thing which we clearly see out there is that um, in, in connecting back to what Leonard was saying and also what Joe was saying, Sandra was saying that, the, the the issue is that you have you have situations where we address we come in we do the humanitarian needs and we let's say invest in people or or keep people alive for three months six months something like that, but the cause of that is not addressed, right? So so the question becomes that look if you were hungry yesterday or today you are hungry because there is a war in your in your place of uh, where you live, and that war continues, what are you supposed to do? How come your food security can be, is going to improve unless the war goes away? Same thing with climate. If the shock is there and it is significant and it displaced you out of where you were and you can't go back, now that maybe the flood is gone, look at Pakistan example, uh, but you lost everything. How do you come back into the economic stream? when you have lost everything, right? So both of these things kind of take you to the point of basically we need both type of assistance. We need the, the, the humanitarian assistance to save lives, but we also need the assistance both on the political front and also on the economic front to bring back these people into the economic cycle who have been thrown out. I think for me, I mean, that is missing. And when we talk about chronic and acute, it is this protracted, so it is now chronic issue. Well, in most places, the problem is that the chronic people are also getting affected by acute issues. It's that they're, you know, they're, they're in, but in terms of their resilience or in terms of their capacity to address them are further reduced because they're in a very chronic um, space. So bottom line is it is not an either or proposition. Humanitarian development is not either or, it is both. And I think the good news is that IFIs and others, they're learning that message. This is why World Bank has a FCB fragility conflict and violence strategy starting in 2020. IMF followed that in 2022. Why? Because they are realizing that as well as we are. So, so that's one, 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 one thing. So, and on your second question about AI, I think it's here to stay. I mean, we are, we are deploying that. But in terms of, whatever we are going to do, we need to make sure that our methods are credible. And how do you prove that credibility? That is through institutions like yours and that's through journals, reputable journals, peer-reviewed journals, where you put out your methodology of how you're deploying AI, how you're deploying deep learning to address the issues of now casting and forecasting. Because if you don't, then it's an absolute, I mean, you know, AI in a big way is a black box anyway, but it usually gives you a good answer, <laughs> hopefully. But if you don't put it out there, then you're taking a huge risk. 
So my appeal to all those, including my own team, our own teams that were food program is, please go ahead, all, you know, do it, use AI, use it responsibly, but whatever you're gonna do, publish it out there so your peers can review it and basically either they agree or disagree with what your approach is. If we go that way, maybe we de-risk a little bit of that. I'll stop here, thank you. Thanks, thanks, uh, Reef. That's, uh, well, um, I have a feeling our discussion is just getting going, but uh, I think we do have to put an end to this uh, seminar. I think it was a very productive discussion. I'm not going to summarize everything you said, but the take-homes uh, could summarize what I did before when uh, I summarized what Arif was saying, and uh, I can add a few what others were saying, is um, a lot of Cs. We need more better connected systems. We need continuous monitoring, not just when there is a crisis um, activating. We need that continuous to, to anticipate. Um, the data and the systems need to be credible. We need to ensure the coverage is right, and so meaning we need better coverage in general. Um, we need to better coordinate, particularly between humanitarian and the um, preventive action. And uh, we also need to put much more emphasis in our particular analytical work to understand uh, conflict and how that's driving food insecurity, and also how to address um, um, the, yeah, the food security structure you have to do anticipatory action in uh, conflict uh, situations uh, where it's most challenging. So um, with that, the, the agenda is big, large. We are now all here on the panel working one way or another in all of these directions to work on materializing these Cs. And let's hope that we can repeat this seminar in, say, a year from now, and that's both on the early warning, early action front, we've done better. But most of all, we've been able to help bend the, the, the trends in terms of uh, rising food insecurity towards declining acute food insecurity, as that's what this is all about. Thanks, everybody. And uh, thanks, everybody, the audience, for your good questions and for staying with us for this whole period.